The scripture for today's sermon comes from Jude, verses 24 and 25. The word of God speaks to us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is God's word to us. Thanks, Thanks love. That's my wife, by the way. <laughs> you know, I just think it's important for those of you who don't know me to know that, especially you single men who are aspiring to be married someday. I just want you to know that it is possible to outkick your coverage. So it's... <laughs> Give you something to hope for. Amen. Amen. If you don't know me, my name is JJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. It's such a joy to conclude this letter with you today, the final verses in Jude's letter. Pray with me over this text and pray for me and I'll pray for you. Lord, you're so kind to us. Lord, we thank you for a text today that's full of encouragement. You're a good father and we know that Sometimes in your love, you offer us correction and warning, but we thank you for the encouragement that we've come to today. Lord, we pray that we would leave this place with our heads a little bit higher in the knowledge that you see us, you're for us, and the anxieties that we have brought into the room today, you offer comfort and encouragement through Jesus. Meet us in this text, we pray. Amen. Amen. For those of you who may not have seen it, the NBC sitcom, The Good Place, really clever and thoughtful, it wrapped up in 2020, and an article in The Atlantic pointed out that the show successfully disguised itself as one thing on the surface, a comedy about a woman who accidentally gets into heaven, before revealing that it's actually about much deeper things, philosophy, morality, the meaning of life. And without giving too much away, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, the characters are desperately trying to get into the good place, or heaven. And they live in constant fear that they'll fail to get there. And throughout the show, they make all sorts of crazy sacrifices along the way. And when they finally reach the good place, unfortunately, they're deeply disappointed to discover that gaining the power to do whatever you can imagine, which is how the good place functions in this imaginary world, without any hardships, eventually turns your brain to mush, and it leaves you longing to lay down the burden of existence. So their solution for the boredom of heaven and the burden of eternal existence is to create a door, an exit you can walk through and be annihilated whenever you're ready and weary and longing to lay down your existence. If you're here today and you're a Christian, if you're anything like me, there's so much good news in Scripture, but there are still moments where you find yourselves afraid, afraid that you'll fail to get there, afraid that even if you do get there, after making a lot of sacrifices along the way, you might not find it that fulfilling. What if the good place turns out to not be that great? Here in Jude 24, In 25, our author wraps up his letter by speaking directly to these fears for all of us. 
Jude wants to offer us two encouragements. One, don't be afraid. God's preserving his people. You're not gonna fail to finish. Two, don't be afraid. God's preserving his people for his presence. You're not gonna feel unfulfilled when you get there. Let's consider Jude's first encouragement there in verse 24. Don't be afraid, Jude's saying. God's preserving his people, so we're not gonna fail to finish. But it's easy to get confused about what finishing means and doesn't mean. So a couple of things I want you to see. First, the first thing finishing means and doesn't mean is that God preserves us, but he preserves us for our progress, not necessarily our pace. He preserves us for our progress, not our pace. To be moved from spiritual death to spiritual life as a gift of God, something he does all by himself out of his great mercy and kindness for us through Jesus is to become those who are, verse one, Jude says, kept for Jesus Christ, called and kept for Jesus Christ. And now Jude's saying that when you're brought to life by God, he's not only able to keep you for Jesus, verse one, he's also able to keep you from stumbling, verse 24. He's able. If you belong to God, Jesus is able to keep you from falling away so that you finish well in the end. But it's important that you understand what Jude is promising and not promising so that you don't think God's forgotten you when you encounter difficulty or when you experience setbacks along the way, which if you haven't yet, you most certainly will. John Calvin, many, many years ago, famously described God's preservation. This process, verse 24, of being kept from stumbling as often being far less smooth and glamorous than we might assume. Notice what Calvin says. No one in this earthly prison of the body has sufficient strength to press on with due eagerness. And weakness so weighs down the greater number that with wavering and limping and even creeping along the ground, they move at a feeble rate. Nobody's going to set out, Calvin says, so inauspiciously as not daily to make some headway, though it be slight. Oh, thanks a lot. Sometimes you run or walk, Calvin says, if you're fortunate, but there's other times where you're going to limp or even creep along the ground as a Christian. But Jude's saying it all counts as progress if you're facing in the right direction. In the words of historian Claire Davis, You need to think of yourself like a yo-yo that's being held in the hands of a man going upstairs. That sounds weird. Let me explain. There's a sense in which you're a yo-yo. You experience spiritual ups and downs, seasons where you feel close to God as a Christian, seasons where you most decidedly don't, seasons where you fall into sin and God mercifully makes you miserable in your sin and then God's spirit enables you to repent and return. You return to the hand of God of the man, but all the while the man is going upstairs. You're never as stuck as you think. And the spiritual ups and downs that you feel aren't the whole story. You're a yo-yo, yes, but you're a yo-yo held in the hand of a man going upstairs. Progress over pace, direction over speed, certainty over it being easy or like you always expected it would be. Even in the midst of your ups and your downs, Jude's saying he's at work. 
verse 24, to keep you so that he might one day present you blameless before the presence of his glory and you will be filled with great joy. The second thing that finishing means and doesn't mean is that God's preserving us, but he preserves us for purity, not for presumption. God preserves us for purity, not presumption. Don't forget the whole point of this letter. Jude's writing to warn his readers. They're in danger of being seduced by false teachers who are sitting next to them on Sunday morning, but who are trying to sell them an unbiblical view of God, that he's like a senile grandfather sitting on some celestial front porch who's always good for a few bucks when you're hard up and he doesn't really care what you do. He's always gonna give you a pat on the back regardless. Jude says that's not true. And so he warns them, verse four, certain people have crept in. They've crept in unnoticed. They were long ago designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, people who pervert, who twist the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude says, watch out. They're twisting the grace of God into irreligion. The idea that it doesn't really matter what we do God will bless us anyway. French-Canadian theologian D.A. Carson, one of my heroes, has recounted the following story many times to illustrate this kind of false teaching that Jude is warning his readers about. Carson recalls meeting a young, articulate French West African when he was studying in Germany many, many decades ago. They were both working diligently to improve their German, but once a, week, once a week or so, they'd had enough, so they'd go out for a meal together, and they would fall back into French, a language they both knew well. And in the course of those meals, as they got to know each other, Carson learned that this man's wife was in London, training to be a medical doctor. And this man himself was an engineer who needed fluency in German in order to pursue doctoral studies in engineering in Germany. Carson also soon discovered that once or twice a week, this man would disappear into the red light district of town. Obviously, Carson recalls, he went to pay his money and have his woman. And eventually, Carson got to know him well enough that he asked him what he would do if this man discovered his wife was doing something similar all the way in London. Oh, he said, I'd kill her. That's a bit of a double standard, isn't it? Carson asked. You don't understand, the man said. Where I come from in Africa, the husband has the right to sleep with many women. But if a wife is unfaithful to her husband, she must be killed. But you told me that you were raised in a mission school, Carson said. You know that the God of the Bible doesn't have double standards like that. And the man gave Carson a bright smile and he replied in French, roughly translated, ah, but God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. See, religious false teachers distort the good news about Jesus by teaching that if we obey, God will bless us. But Jude has his sight set on irreligious false teachers who distort the good news about Jesus by teaching that it doesn't really matter what we do, God will forgive us, that's his job. That if in fact God does exist, it doesn't really matter how we live. But Jude reminds us that Christians are those who, verse one, have been kept for Jesus. And that as they live in response to that initial rescue, they respond, verse 21, by vigilantly keeping themselves in the love of God. That's because real grace doesn't make us indifferent, it makes us 
diligent. C.S. Lewis, in the last sermon he preached before he died, explained it like this. I don't mean that I can sit back. What God does for us, he does in us. What God does for us, he does in us. The process of keeping myself in the love of God will appear to me, and not falsely, to be the daily or hourly repeated exercises of my own will. Failures will be forgiven. It's acquiescence that's fatal. Acquiescence, quiet resignation, giving up. That's why Jude can urge us to keep ourselves in verse 21. And then here, a few sentences later in our passage in verse 24, comfort us with the fact that God himself can't fail to keep us because keeping ourselves is actually one of the ways that God keeps us. It's easy to get confused about what finishing well means and doesn't mean. The third thing I want you to see that finishing well means and doesn't mean is that God preserves us But he preserves us for his presence, not a pass on suffering. He preserves us for his presence, but it's not a pass on suffering. If we're going to fully appreciate this ending of the story that Jude is giving to us here, we're going to have to remember how the story began. That our journey is a journey back into the presence of God because our journey began with being sent away from the presence of God. Everything sad And everyone's life in this room is ultimately a byproduct of our first parents being removed from God's presence. That's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 1611 so memorably, God, you make known to me the path of life. Notice there's a path back to life because it's a path back to the presence of God. The psalmist says, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The sad thing is that our first parents actually had everything they needed right in front of them, but they were seduced by the lie that God was withholding. So they rejected the safety and the beauty of his authority by feasting on what he'd forbidden them out of his love and wisdom and care for them, and as a result, they brought death and darkness into the good world that God had made. We broke everything. Genesis 3.8, and after we did that, it says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves, notice, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Our first reaction was to hide from his presence. We've all been hiding ever since. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 2 that our condition is that we're separated from the presence of Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. So God came close. God sent his own son to offer up a taste of his presence that we'd forgotten in a form that our frailty could handle. The only one pure enough to enter God's white hot holy presence as a blameless sacrifice and yet mysteriously somehow at the same time fully human so he could be accepted as our substitute and be punished in our place. So Jude says, verse 24, God is able to keep you from stumbling precisely for the purpose of presenting you blameless before the presence of his glory with great 
joy. Jude's saying his, his preservation is for his presence so that we might be with him. What's gonna finally bring us joy won't primarily be the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. But before we go any further, we gotta stop and address a very real tension in our text that you might have even been picking up on. Here in verses 24 and 25, Jude offers us comfort. God's able to keep his people from stumbling, from falling away from the faith and failing to die a Christian. But just a few sentences before, as we've already noted in verse 21, Jude offers them a caution. But you, beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God. A caution in verse 21. Now comfort in verse 24. Keep yourselves. God's able to keep you. How do they connect? Or do they connect? Maybe they contradict. Couple thoughts. One, scripture is clear. With us rests responsibility, but with God rests our final security. Scripture deliberately doesn't say how they fit together, so neither can we. But it also doesn't ever portray them as contradictory, so neither should we. As D.A. Carson says, this means we're locked into mystery, and it shouldn't be that surprising we're thinking about God. If there were nothing mysterious about him, I suppose he would not be God. He'd be too small, too easily tamed, too domesticated. So there's mystery. But we also don't stop thinking. We don't throw our hands up. There's a really precise and thoughtful way that Scripture handles both the comfort of God keeping us in his love and the caution to keep ourselves in his love. And so we should handle those mysterious but compatible truths in the same careful way we see Jude handling them. And what Jude's telling us throughout his letter is that real faith will always finish to the end. And it's not how strong your faith is or how much of it you have, but whether it's real. Because if it's real, it's enough. No matter how small or weak or fragile it might seem to you when you pause and look inside. And the real issue, Jude's saying, is that a lot of people are simply self-deceived. It's not that they don't have enough faith. It's that they like to think of themselves as Christ followers until they come to an ethical crossroads and Christ commands them to go right and they stubbornly go left. And if you ask them, they'd probably admit that they're calling the shots in their life. My point to you is that if you're actually worried at all about whether you're self-deceived, you probably aren't. Those who are usually couldn't care less. They might like the idea of Jesus riding shotgun in their life, but they'd never dream of letting him drive. So in one sense, it's not that hard to find out if Jesus is Lord and master of your life. Just pick something that you and the Bible disagree on and then see who wins. <laughs> We're not talking about the failures that we all experience as imperfect people. Jude's talking about a willful, persistent refusal to submit to Jesus as authority. These are the kind of people Jude's writing to warn his readers about. Just because somebody's sitting next to you on Sunday morning doesn't mean they've submitted themselves to the authority of Jesus. Different ailments require different remedies. Maybe you walked in today troubled by hidden sin. There's a remedy for that. 
Maybe you walked in today with an unbothered conscience in the midst of unrepentant sin. There's a different remedy for that. Maybe you walked an aisle 20 years ago, but today if you tried, you couldn't be convicted of being a Christian in a court of law in a country where Christians are persecuted for their faith. There's a different remedy for that. For example, just to consider one of those ailments. If you carried hidden sin into the room today and you're asking, how much assurance can I have? Scripture's answer is, how much assurance do you want? You can have as much assurance as you want. If you repent, you'll find in Jesus grace greater than all your shame. In fact, the only reason we even get our guts up to do something as crazy as drag our sin to the light is that we know there's grace. We repent because we know there's grace. So bring that hidden sin into the light and your assurance will grow. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, then you'll have just as much assurance as you want. Confidence in God's preservation and careful self-examination are not contradictory. They're actually connected for every Christian. In his infinite wisdom, God's using both warnings and promises to produce real vigilance and real comfort in his people, and both are ways in which he's at work to preserve us. If you really are a Christian, the cautions in Jude's letter aren't meant to trigger worry and endless introspection. They're meant to reassure you and strengthen your confidence. If you were self-deceived, you wouldn't be taking his warnings to heart in the first place. You'd be blowing them off. But if you find in yourself a longing to be kept by Jesus in the way that Jude describes, take heart. John Newton, the former slave trader who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, wrote these words in a letter to a friend. Notice what he says. Don't dishonor Christ so as to imagine he will disappoint the desire which no power but his can implant in your heart. Give Jesus a little credit, Newton's saying. You wouldn't have that desire at all unless Jesus put it there. And he's kind. He wouldn't give you the desire and then not fulfill the very desire he took the trouble to put in your heart in the first place. Isn't that what Jude's saying? Verse 24, he's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. If Jesus has your trust, if he has your submission, if he has your heart, you don't have to be afraid you'll end up a failure. Why? Because God's preserving his people. But you also don't have to be afraid you'll end up unfulfilled either because there's a point to his preservation. His preservation, Jude's saying, is for his presence. He preserves us not because he needs us or needs anything from us, but something much better because he wants to be with us. Jude's second encouragement to us in verse 25 is that we don't have to be afraid because God's preserving his people for his presence, so there's no way we're gonna feel unfulfilled. But we still wonder, don't we? How can we be sure we'll find fulfillment in God's presence? How can we be sure all the sacrifices in the present moment are gonna be worth it? A couple reasons. We'll find fulfillment in his presence because in God's presence, we're not the center of interest anymore. We'll find fulfillment in God's presence 
because it's in his presence where we're finally not the center of interest. Think about the fact that Jude's closing words here in verse 25 are for us, but they're not about us. <laughs> to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Hey, what about me? Was I in there? I think I missed it. <laughs> Jude's closing words are for us, but they're not about us. In fact, the only way they can be for us is by not being about us. Because what Jude's saying is that it's only when God gets the glory he deserves that we can finally taste the joy we're all longing for. God's never going to be satisfied. He's not going to rest, and neither will we until he's finally put back at the center where he belongs. We shrivel and die at the center. Most people in the world who are unhappy are unhappy because they haven't yet figured out the profound truth that it's not about them. Being at the center is exhausting. We make perfectly good people. We make terrible gods. We weren't made for the center. We can't actually become our true selves until we find somebody bigger than us and better than us who could take us outside ourselves and permanently hold our awe and our attention. Jude talks about the glory of God here in verse 25. Glory is like a spotlight that can't be switched off. It's got to be pointed somewhere. If we don't worship the creator, then we end up worshiping the things he's made and we shrivel up. Our souls get small and sick and starved for something transcendent and beautiful. So what Jude's saying here in verse 25 is that if we don't want our souls to shrivel up and die, then all spotlights need to be trained on God. All songs should be sung to God. Every mouth should shout praise to God. Every knee should bow to God. To him, Jude says, belong glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Give those things to him. They belong to him. He's always deserved them. And the good news, verse 25 says, is that someday soon he'll have them. We're gonna find fulfillment in his presence because in God's presence, we're known intimately. We're gonna find fulfillment in God's presence. We don't have to be afraid of that because in his presence, we're known intimately. Jude says, now to him, to the only God, our savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory. Glory belongs to him, not only because he's the only God, but also because he's our savior. <laughs> we're known intimately. What's so profound about this God Jude's saying, unlike any other God anyone's tried to sell you on, is that he's transcendent without being indifferent. He's both transcendent and intimate. And when you encounter a God where both of those attributes come to you together, they enable you to transcend your circumstances, your suffering. We're all fascinated by people who transcend their circumstances. If we're really honest, the longer we live, the less interested we are in figuring out how to acquire the best that life has to offer. One, because we've seen how fleeting those things are. Easy come, easy go. Two, because we've experienced ourselves how those things don't ultimately make us happy even when we get them. So sure, we're happy for our friends when they're fortunate. But we're fascinated by those friends who face suffering and grieve, but not as those without hope, who somehow avoid growing bitter and hard. How have they managed to transcend their circumstances? 
What could possibly produce that kind of response in suffering? What kind of person does it take? But we're asking the wrong question. We're looking in the wrong place. The secret doesn't lie in the person. The answer is not in how they've transcended their circumstances, but who they met right in the middle of their circumstances, who is himself transcendent. Somebody so transcendent that he can capture every one of your tears in a bottle, scripture says, and not lose track of a single one while at the same exact moment upholding the universe with just a word. Somebody so transcendent, he could enter into our human experience so fully that Isaiah had to describe him as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, while simultaneously existing out of time and never even coming close to being surprised, perplexed, or caught off guard ever. When you meet a Christian who's transcending his circumstances, when you meet a Christian who's transcending his cancer, it's because of this. It's because of the sheer weight and wonder of this God who can cradle galaxies and yet intimately attend to that man in his agony and his fear of death so that he's undone to such a degree that he can only lay his head back on the pillow and whisper with Jude, glory. This is our God, Jude's saying. He's transcendent and yet he's tender. He dwells in unapproachable light, and yet he draws near. The only God is also, verse 25, our Savior. We're going to find fulfillment in his presence because it's in God's presence where we're not only known intimately, but we'll also grow to know him infinitely. In his presence, we're going to grow to know him infinitely. We'll be presented before his presence with great joy And then Jude invites us to ascribe glory to him. The glory, Jude says, that's belonged to him in eternity past, that belongs to him in the present moment, that will belong to him in eternity future. And this glory that Jude invites us to ascribe to him, another word for glory is beauty. Beauty. There never has been a time, there never will be a time, where someone or something else will be more compelling, more worthy of your fascination, Jude's saying, more worthy of your devotion and submission than God himself. There's nobody else who can infinitely hold your attention. So that's why Paul can say in Ephesians 2 that in the coming ages, here's what's gonna happen. God's gonna show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's never gonna run out of things to show us. The riches of God's grace and kindness toward us, Paul says they're immeasurable. He'll spend the coming ages showing them to us and our attention will be held for eternity because we'll grow to know him infinitely. In conclusion, I think that's why the show writers of The Good Place got it right. I think heaven without God would eventually leave us all disillusioned, longing to lay down the burden of existence and walk through the door. But if you find yourself drawn to the idea of the door, it shows that you don't comprehend the nature of the God described for us in these verses. There's no possibility of boredom in the presence of this God. 
No such door will be needed or desired by those who are ushered into the presence of his glory with great joy, where they'll discover themselves to be endlessly fascinated by this God of infinite glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Whatever you found most satisfying in your life up to the present moment is just the merest glimpse of what you're going to find in God himself. He's that big, that beautiful, that inexhaustible. You couldn't be bored in the presence of God if you tried. You couldn't worry about being bored in the presence of God if you tried because you're not going to be able to worry about anything in God's presence. Being in the presence of God for eternity is like diving deeper and deeper into your favorite book or meal or memory or reunion, except you don't ever scrape the bottom and you don't ever get tired of diving deeper because your capacity for enjoyment is gonna grow as your enjoyment grows. Jude's saying, the full weight of the glory and splendor of our God has not yet been fully revealed but I bet you've caught little glimpses of it. Oceans, mountains, sunset, skies stretching over the prairie, the cry of birds, the wind in your face, galaxies spotted through a telescope, flowers coming up in the spring, symphonies, weddings, wine being poured in the glass, soldiers coming home from war, babies being born, any broken thing that's ever been mended, most clearly of all in the face of the man, Christ Jesus. So here's what I think Jude is really saying to us. We're not home yet, but you can almost taste it. We're not home yet, but you can almost taste it. Glory, majesty, dominion, authority, beauty, before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your beauty. Thank you that we've come to a God who can infinitely captivate us, make us go quiet with awe as we consider all of your goodness and power. Lord, we pray that you would display it for us even now at the table in this miracle of the bread and the cup that you've brought us back into your presence. We can sit down and feast with you. Meet us in these moments, we pray. Fill us up with expectation and joy. Satisfy us with yourself, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.